If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. On the 29th of September, 1923, Britain's empire was at its territorial height. But even as British power stretched across the globe were the seeds already sown of the empire's destruction. In his new book, One Fine Day, Matthew Parker charts what was happening across the imperial territories on that day in September 23, through the testimonies of those on the ground, from Samoa and Nigeria to New Zealand and India. I spoke to him to find out more. Thank you for joining us, Matthew. In One Fine Day, you guide readers through snapshots of life across the British Empire on just one day, which is the 29th of September, 1923. Why did you choose that date? Well, the biggest reason is because it was the day that the Palestine Mandate became law, and it was the moment where the British Empire reached what would turn out to be its maximum territorial extent. So as you say, the British Empire was at its territorial height at this point. What areas did it cover? Is it true that the sun never set on the British Empire? It is true, or as the Irish, an Irish politician said, the blood never dried on the British Empire. Yes, I start right up against the international dateline at a tiny Pacific island, and I follow the sun all the way across to the Caribbean, by which stage it is 
um, almost midnight in the Pacific Island. Um, the sun certainly didn't set, and the empire covered something like a quarter of the world's land area. And after the gains from Germany and from the uh, Ottoman Empire at the end of the First World War, for the first time you could walk from Cape Town to Rangoon without ever leaving British-controlled territory. So why did you choose to take this approach in your book? Why did you think it's illuminating or interesting to take one moment in time in the British Empire? What can it tell us about Britain's, you know, wider imperial history? You know, a lot has been written about the empire, a lot of sort of traditional narrative history. And I wanted, firstly, to do something a bit different. And also I wanted to sort of turn it upside down. I think a lot of people approach this subject with a lot of sort of preconceptions as polemicists, really. And what I wanted to do was to sort of turn that upside down and really restrict myself to only telling stories that have a direct link to this day. And so what I did, instead of, you know, looking for sources to justify some sort of argument, I started with newspapers. I went through all of the um, letters in the colonial office from that day, either received or sent on that day, the advantage was it pushed me into unexpected directions. I would discover, for instance, a letter to the colonial office from the phosphate company demanding more land on the island, Ocean Island, Banaba, of which I'd, I'd never heard of. And I investigated the story, and it's just the most extraordinary tale. It was the news of an inquest of someone who had committed suicide, and it turned out that he was a victim of what they call shell shock, so that opened up a whole area of research. There was another story in a New Zealand paper about Reverend Hickson in Auckland Cathedral, St Matthew's, was hosting 10,000 people who turned up believing that he was a faith healer. So they were turning up with diseased or, or disabled people. And that really opened up the whole area of the sort of psychological damage and changes that had occurred as a result of the First World War, which, of course, had a massive impact on the empire as a whole. So in a book like this, it's a fairly big book, you've got a huge diversity of experience, of ideas, of feelings. Is there anything that you can kind of glean from that in terms of characterising the empire at this point in history? Or was that something that you weren't even keen to do? Well, I think the fact that it has lots of different voices from you know, the grandest governor to the humblest nurse, from militant Buddhist Sri Lankans to Indian politicians to Pan-Africanists is the huge complexity of the empire. You know, people ask a question about the empire and it's almost nonsensical because there is such diversity. You know, there's the frozen wastes of Canada, there's the jungles of Borneo. There are places that have been part of the empire for hundreds of years. There are some places that have only been in the empire for a few years, if that. There are some places where the civilizations are much older than Britain's. Um, there's a, a Sri Lankan uh, nationalist who's very fond of saying that his country had been building amazing temples and reservoirs while the British barbarians were living in caves. So there's this massive, massive diversity and complexity. And I think that's a, a really an important point that the book makes. That this is very complex. It's very nuanced. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging 
so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I think a lot of people might be surprised to hear that 1923 was the territorial height of the empire. And the subtitle of your book is Britain's Empire on the Brink. It wasn't really that long until it all came crashing down. So do you think that the seeds of destruction were sown even as the British Empire was at its height? Yeah, I'm I'm constantly amazed that only 100 years ago, the empire had a population bigger than Russia, the United States and the French Empire combined. It was the sole global superpower. And this is only 100 years ago. Absolutely astonishing. But certainly at the same time as this territorial zenith was reached, many of the factors that would see the rapid end of the empire were already coalescing and they were already in place. So what were some of those factors, in your opinion? Well, some of them sort of predate the war, but the the First World War had a huge impact. Obviously, it cost a great deal of money and it left Britain with a huge debt. It destroyed the European market for British goods. Europe was in ruins, it was impoverished, they were deflating their currencies, and there was widespread political instability. I mean, Hitler's Nazis were marching on the streets of Germany. And actually, I was researching this part of the book during the Brexit vote, and there was a sort of interesting parallels of the policymakers at the economic conference in London, which was about to start just a couple of days after the day, um, they were saying, "Why well, we've lost this market. We're going to make it up by selling more to the empire. You know, there was the whole global Britain thing. And of course, the Great Exhibition at Wembley was under construction, which was going to showcase all of the, the products of the empire. So economically, Britain was in trouble. There was 2 million unemployed, which is absolutely unprecedented. But more than that, I think you can see a tectonic shift in the attitude of the colonised to their imperial overlords. And this goes back to the defeat by Japan of Russia in 1905, described by W.E.B. Du Bois in America as a sort of a breaking of the magic of the word white. Um, Norman Manley, who was obviously later the 
the first Prime Minister of Jamaica, and he had fought in the British Army during the war. He was fond of quoting a, a British official who'd admitted that the empire relied on the carefully nourished sense of inferiority in the governed. Um, and Jawaharlal Nehru would also say the Indians felt they were second rate. They'd been told they were second rate. And he said that the um, even more than the force of arms or diplomacy, the psychological triumph of the British in India was, was absolutely key. But this was changing. And all across the empire, we see groups gathering, and they often start as literary or debating societies, trying to nurture and revive indigenous art and writing and poetry and so on. The war sort of accelerated everything because there was great hardship, the rise, terrible price rises and food shortages. So this obviously stimulated sort of rebellion, as it always does. And these literary and debating societies, the cultural became political. And increasingly, they were organising themselves into the sort of serious opponents to British rule and making more and more demands for self-government and much more control over their own affairs. So you've got this shift happening. And by September 23, this is pretty much irreversible. You mentioned there the rise of the Nazi party in Germany. And this is, of course, an era where we see experiments in big new ideas about alternative forms of government, whether that is fascism, communism, democracy, how impactful was that on ideas about imperialism and whether it felt outdated? I think that's that's a very good question. In 1914, pretty much the whole, the whole world is part of an empire. There are these massive empires, with some exceptions. But then at the end of the war, of course, you see the collapse of the Russian Empire, the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. An empire becomes, it's sort of a bit out of date. And it becomes, one British policymaker said, empires become a dirty word. And you have to remember that there have been great shifts in Britain as well. In 1918, there's a, there's a mass extension of the franchise to all male adults and most women over the age of 30. So this is, this is real democracy at home for the first time. And the autocracy abroad is increasingly jarring in that context. Can you tell us a bit more about the ideology that underpinned empire at this time? I mean, there's a lot of rhetoric in this era about a civilising mission. Is that how most imperialists viewed it in the 20th century? There were debates really throughout the empire about what it's for. Does it actually benefit people in Britain? And these arguments are ongoing. But there's certainly, after the Treaty of Versailles, creates the new mandate system. So the colonies that have basically just been land grabbed by France and Britain in the Middle East and in Africa were set up as League of Nations mandates to be monitored by the League of Nations with an express purpose, which was to lead them as quickly as possible to self-government. And this, this idea, it can't be contained and it sort of starts to be applied to the empire as a whole. So the job of the empire is really just to dismantle itself as quickly as possible. Out of this grows this idea, which really dominates at this time, the imperial thinking of trusteeship. There is a duty of care but on the part of British officials to civilise, they would probably say, but to, to educate and to develop the colonies to a point where they considered it safe to hand over 
the reins of government. And this process is underway, of course, in India. Um, during the war, the, there was an appeal from the governor general to the cabinet saying, look, we, we haven't got enough British soldiers here in India. I mean, it is all, ever since the rebellion of 57, everyone is terrified this is going to happen. And they had a strict rules that you would have so many British soldiers per Indian soldiers. And this had gone out of the window because everyone had been shipped back to, to fight in France. So rather as a sort of defensive reaction, the Secretary of State for India announces sweeping reforms that really hand over provincial government in India to Indians and set out a programme for the Indianization of the civil service and of the officer corps of the Indian army. Now, this is envisaged at this time to be succeeding sometime in the 1980s. That was the sort of time frame. So it's painfully slow and it's all under the control of the British. But elsewhere as well, there are political concessions being made. There's an election um, still being celebrated on my day in Lagos, where the first West African political party has had a landslide victory. There are political reforms in Burma and in Sri Lanka and in the Caribbean as well. Um, but what tended to happen was every concession made by London was greeted with further demands. It just stoked the appetite for further changes. And the other key thing about trusteeship is that it assumed that the British official on the spot knew best for the people under his care. It's deeply paternalistic. And you have these really strange situations. There were a lot of people I came across who were immensely well-meaning. They would learn as much as they could about the cultures of the people that they were living with, um, and they would do their utmost to improve things like infant mortality rates. But often these, however well-meaning, backfired. There's a, a really interesting example of Samoa, now, Samoa had been run by the Germans. It was taken over during the war by New Zealand troops and it became a, a mandate run from New Zealand. And one of the... There was a guy called Richardson who was the governor on my day. And he wanted to be popular. He loved being photographed with Samoan children. And he called the Samoans well-meaning children. And he tried to learn Samoan. And he introduced this really wide-ranging measure of reforms to improve... Um, infant mortality rates and it massively succeeded the, the rate fell more than anywhere else in the pacific but at the same time so intrusive and so sort of bossy and infantilizing were these measures for the samoan people that samoa actually had a more active resistance to imperial rule than anywhere else even though on paper they had benefited from it again more than anyone else so the idea of trusteeship holds within it these really sort of white supremacist assumptions that that we know best for these childlike people. So it's a massively complex picture that you're painting. A lot of the sources that you draw on in the book are cultural rather than political or economic. Can you give us a sense of how that impacted ideas about imperialism and some of the debates that were going on there? I love looking at novelists. Um, these are perceptive and articulate people. And on my day, E.M. Forster is writing his masterpiece, The Passage to India. George Orwell is in Burma. He's a policeman in Burma. And he's 
gathering material for what would become Burmese Days. Um, D.H. Lawrence is in Australia writing a very strange novel. Actually, it was published in September 23 about the very complex attitude that Australians had towards the empire at this time. It was a very divided country. They were very, very keen on having the Royal Navy defend them against what they saw as the imminent threat of an invasion from Japan. But in other ways, they resented the sort of air of superiority that, that the British took on. But also these people wrote journalism. I mean, E.M. Forster was really the London press's India expert. He made two journeys there before and after the war. And Orwell as well, of course, wrote a lot about his time in Burma, which utterly transformed him from this self-confessed sort of snobbish prig when he left Eton to, well, he came back and, and then sort of went down and out in London and Paris, as, as I'm, I'm sure your listeners know. So these are people that um, I think have an interesting take. Someone like Forster, he's not a part of the government. He's a sort of neutral observer for India. And he's incredibly perceptive about the the challenges facing the different parts of India. You end the book with Forster and his passage to India. Do you think that it's indicative of of a sense of defeat almost in the British about imperialism at this time? Again, you shouldn't generalise across the empire. You know, I've really tried to avoid doing that. So India is a particular case. Obviously, it's a uniquely important and populous and sort of politically developed part of the empire. And there was a very interesting... I I tell the story of the Prince of Wales, who is travelling around the empire at this time, because the only thing that really united the empire, as far as people in, in London were concerned, was shared loyalty to the monarch. That's the only real thing holding the empire together. So the rather photogenic prince, he was called the Prince of Hearts, is is sent to Canada, Australia, New Zealand, where he gets a pretty good welcome. Um, But then he goes to India and it's completely different. There is mass boycott of his visits. There are riots. And he comes away with a feeling that the morale amongst the British in India was pretty much rock bottom. He reports that people didn't want their sons to follow them into the Indian civil service because this was no longer a place for a white man. And indeed, the India office is having terrible trouble recruiting people. Of course, the central relationship in A Passage to India is between an Englishman, Fielding, who's a schoolteacher, and an Indian, Aziz. And this relationship really stumbles. They're like brothers to begin with. But then, as people know, Aziz is arrested and treated appallingly for a crime that he doesn't seem to have committed. And he becomes violently anti-British. And Fielding still wants to be his friend. But the conclusion, really, that Forster comes to is that transcultural friendships are not possible in the world of empire. Gandhi, even after the massacre at Amritsar and the brutal martial law that was imposed on the Punjab subsequent to that, he still said that he wanted the British connection to be kept up if only they would stop treating us as inferior. And this is really this is really the rub. But white prestige, which dictated white superiority, was in some ways absolutely essential to the empire. There's a famous quote by Elspeth Huxley writing about Kenya at this time. She says, respect is the only protection available to Europeans who live singly or in scattered families among thousands of Africans accustomed to constant warfare and armed with spears and poisoned arrows. This respect preserved them like an invisible coat of mail or a form of magic and seldom failed. 
So this idea is essential even to the security of Europeans living in the empire. So in a way, it's the empire's greatest strength. But as we've seen with the angry reaction of people like Gandhi to being treated as inferior, it's also the empire's greatest weakness and one of the greatest causes of its rapid collapse. So from all these incredibly diverse experiences and sources that you've looked at for the book, were there any that really particularly stood out in your mind as surprising? Were there any that caught you off guard? Many of them, to be honest. I was constantly surprised and I constantly had my preconceptions um, overturned. One of my proudest finds was I employed researchers uh, across the world in local archives, but he managed to find a letter written by Herbert Macaulay, who was the leader of the political party in Lagos, which we talked about earlier, to Marcus Garvey in America. And Garvey is a hugely important influence across the empire with his call for black pride and his demand, for instance, that black people should stop skin whitening and hair straightening and be proud of their blackness. And Macaulay wrote to him in the context of a shipping line, the Black Star Line, that Garvey was trying to establish to run between the West Indies and America and West Africa. And Macaulay was considered by the British authorities in Lagos to be a complete nuisance. And he's now considered a father of Nigerian nationalism, the Gandhi of West Africa. But this letter is full of praise for the British Empire and for its advertised principles of medicine, education, the rule of law, development, peace, all the justifications for empire, which readers of my book will find are not as simple as they might first appear. But this man, who is a famous Nigerian nationalist, actually had huge affection and respect for the ideals of the British Empire, if not maybe their practical display in in his country. That was a great surprise for me. And finally, Matthew, your book is being published pretty much exactly 100 years on from the date that you're looking at. So how do you think that we should reflect on this moment in British imperial history 100 years on? Well, it wasn't originally supposed to be on the anniversary, but it took actually eight years from start to finish to produce the book, which was a lot longer than my publisher or I anticipated. It's a happy coincidence, I guess, that it's coming out on the the actual anniversary. And as we said earlier, it's astonishing that only 100 years ago that Britain was this amazing superpower. But I think it's also quite a lot happened in the course of the long time I took um, researching and writing this book. We talked about Brexit and global Britain. There was also the Black Lives Matter movement, which I think made everyone look afresh at the issues of race and and racism, which is obviously very important for the empire. And there's also the growing addressing of the past in places like the Caribbean, where the reparations movement is, you know, really gathering pace and and, and beginning to get results. And I think really this is part of a, a big shift in thinking, both in Britain and in territories of, that were in the empire in 1923. And I was very struck that Barbados, where I actually um, spent some of my childhood, was the first out of the blocks to leave the Commonwealth, which is the Commonwealth is a sort of imperial hangover, of course. And they want to address this. They want to really to start afresh and to get out from the rather humiliating position of having a head of state who is 
a white man on the other side of the world. So clearly, you know, things are changing as far as this part of our history and our shared history with lots of parts of the world. And I hope what will come out of it is more understanding of the complexity of the nuance and also a move towards reconciliation for what has happened in the past. That was Matthew Parker speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorn. Matthew's book, One Fine Day, Britain's Empire on the Brink, is available now, published by Little Brown. Matthew wrote a feature on this subject for the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is also on sale now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.